Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode of The Greatness Machine. My gosh, Larry Yatch, what an episode. Um, I'm going to tell you this right now, that we literally booked a second episode uh, right towards the end because this was such a great episode. So Larry is a former Navy SEAL, uh, led one of the one of the largest uh, special ops missions in the history of special ops, wrote an amazing book, How Leadership Works. I've already started reading it. This guy is just, I, I've actually never met anyone like him. The way he thinks, the way he talks about leadership, it's the stories from um, being in the special forces, how he got into it. I mean, just we went all over the place and it was such an amazing episode. I, I, I was so pumped for it and I'm pumped for the next one. But you're here right now, so t- stay tuned, listen. This is really one of the better episodes, if not one of the best episodes of The Greatness Machine. Uh, stay tuned. Enjoy Larry Yatch. Guys, welcome to today's episode of The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde, and boy, do we have a special guest. My friend, Larry Yatch, is in the house. What's up, Larry? Hey, man. It's good to be here. Did I pronounce your last name properly? Yes. Yeah, it's just like Catch or Patch. Yeah, I, I, I saw the Y, and I'm like, I'm like, you know, I didn't confirm. Sometimes the the Y has like an H sound or something to it, like 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 we're in like Mexico. <laughs> yeah, the so, Y um, screws everyone up, uh, but you got it right. Good job. Oh, you know, when your last name is Mershazde, you take, you know, you really got to nail people's last names. You can't, you can't, you can't be lazy on that. Um, well, um, so, so listeners who are new to the show, the greatness machine, we're about two things. People are living their passions and those are creating greatness in the world. And Larry is neither short of passion or greatness. Um, so Larry, you know, he came to us through, um, he just wrote a book. We're going to be talking all about his new book, uh, how leadership actually works, but he came through us through his, his publisher, who I actually published my book as well, Scribe Media. And um, we have a mutual friend uh, and who's also a client of Larry's, uh, Javon McCormick, former guest on the show. And they were talking to me. They're like, man, you, you, got, you got to have Larry on the show. You know? And J- Javon's been on the show a couple of times. And, and I was like, look, man, if you guys refer someone to me, I'll put them on the show any day of the week. Um, so we got you scheduled on the show a, a, a few months ago. And man, I've been looking forward to it. I, I, I'm really excited to talk to you all about leadership. Uh, before the show, I was telling Larry, I'm like, man, we're going to geek out on leadership over the next hour. So, man, welcome to the show. I'm so, so excited to have you here, man. Oh, yeah. I, again, Javon, one, one of my, like you said, one of one of my favorite people as well. And being able to work with him has been a blast. And then uh, having, uh, it was both he and Tucker that uh, forced me into writing a book. So I was uh, relatively against it for quite a while. And uh, having their support and doing that has actually been a, a real gift to be able to pass my message or get my message out to a much larger population than just the companies we work with. No, oh, that's so cool, man. And, and I can't wait to dive into it. So, so for uh, listeners who are not familiar with Larry, uh, Larry is, the, the, there's a technical term in the uh, dictionary for what Larry is. Larry is what we call a fucking badass. Um, <laughs> and, uh, no, but seriously, uh, he's an elite, uh, leadership strategist, CEO and creator of the seal team leaders, a 10 year U S Navy seal, 
uh, turned business consultant who has reverse engineered the behaviors that make SEALs the most elite and connected teams on the planet. Author, as I mentioned before, of How Leadership Actually Works. Spent nearly a decade since retirement as a trainer and speaker. And you're working with some of the top companies in the world right now and top organizations in the world, really working on this thing that, that I think we need way more of in this world, which is leadership. So did I, did I get it all? Did, I, I know I probably missed a bunch of stuff, but, but did <laughs> that do it justice? Not for sure. Yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> I thought when you when you start with the textbook definition of what you are, that, 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 that you know, where do you go from there? Um, so, so, you know, first and foremost, you know, I'm always intrigued by, by Navy SEALs. Um, I, it's, it's, I think the whole world is because it's, it's like something where they're like, what's the failure rate? It's, it's a, a, of buds right, right now. And my class, my class was one of the last winter classes, meaning we started in uh, late fall and graduated in early spring. So we had uh, our training went through the worst part of the year, uh, both dive phase right in January and, and hell week, the end of November. And uh, we start with 135 guys and graduated 11 of those original 135 six months later. So it was uh, over 90 percent. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I think that's that that's what does it. Anyone that says, "Look, if there's over a ninety percent failure rate, like I want to understand what 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 kind of a human can do that, right?" I, I think we as humans, you know, like uh, Ray Dalio has the quote, "Struggle well," right? We love the struggle well, and I think Buds and the Seals is such an exemplary, act, uh, you know, representation of that. So, so you know, I guess my first question for you is. Uh, we love origin stories here at the Greatness Virginia. Take us back, man. Like, like, where, where, like, give us some of your origin story, and how did you decide to, you know, take the plunge into doing one of the most elite, hardest things in the world, of becoming a Navy SEAL? Uh, I have to attribute all of this to Tom Cruise. Uh, I saw Top Gun in third grade and decided I was going to be a fighter pilot. <laughs> like, that's seriously the start of it. I remember sitting in the movie theater with my parents and my sister, my aunt and uncle, and. And in middle of third grade, I walked out knowing I was going to be a fighter pilot. And because it was, you know, they were on the Navy. How do you become a fighter pilot in the Navy is go to the Naval Academy. So by middle of third grade, I was convinced I was going to go to the Naval Academy, be a fighter pilot and started working towards that end with that kind of single minded focus from that very early age. And so how so. I mean, first of all, I guess that makes us about the same age because when I was in third grade, um, I played against a soccer team called Top Gun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which, which I mean, that was a really popular movie in, in yeah. 1987. Um, and now it is now again as, because they've redone it. So so you, you, you that's really cool. Like God kind of like shone down on you and said, hey, man, you this is what you're here to do. So you so you joined. Did you you go to the Naval Academy? And then from there, did you uh, enlist OCS or what, what, what was like your next yeah, step? So, out of- uh, it would have been a, about seventh grade, a seventh or eighth grade. I found out about the Navy SEALs through a book. Uh, a friend got me a sweatshirt that said Navy SEALs on it simply because it had a cool logo on it and said Navy. You know, this would have been early 90s. No one knew what a Navy SEAL was. And I went to the library and found a book called The Men with Green Faces which was a Vietnam era SEAL book. And by the end of the book, I was convinced fighter pilots were pansies and I needed to be a Navy SEAL. <laughs> the only problem was uh, I would have been voted least likely to be a Navy SEAL out of high school. I was all through high school. I was five foot two, uh, 110 pounds. It wasn't until my senior year that I actually grew. Uh, I, and I just grew up. So I went from like five, five, five to six, two in one summer, but I didn't put on a pound. So I like graduated high school at 150, 160 pounds at six, two. And, and if it had a ball, I grew up in Pittsburgh. If I had a ball, if it had a ball or a team, I was useless at it. So I was definitely the nerdy kid at school. And I wouldn't, I didn't even risk telling anyone that I wanted to be a Navy SEAL because I think everyone would have laughed at me. But I did get into the Naval Academy. And so I went to the, the academy and, and started working towards that goal of, of becoming a SEAL and, and getting stronger. And, and after competing with all of my classmates, I got a chance to go into SEAL training right out of the academy. And the Naval Academy is a college run by the Navy. So you're actually in the Navy the whole time you're at school. It's, it's kind of more prison than college, but 
uh, it does give you an amazing opportunity to to learn, practice, and gain experience in leadership. So I started SEAL training as an officer straight out of the Naval Academy and and not what would have been 1998 and graduated at the top of my class uh, six months later. Top of your class uh, in, in Naval Academy or, or at Navy SEALs? At the SEAL training, yeah, at BUDS. Wow. So, so yeah, so, so you weren't, uh, you, it sounds like you were not an athlete, all right, like textbook athlete growing up. Um, did you didn't play any sports or anything like that? Yeah. So it was, uh, if I would have been born a generation later, I would have been the cool kid. Cause if it was odd and you could get hurt doing it, I was, I loved it. So water skiing, snow skiing and, and, and mountain biking is like those things I enjoy, but growing up in the city in Pittsburgh and late eighties, early nineties, if you didn't play baseball, football or, or basketball, you're a nerd. And so, uh, I wasn't, you know, I would definitely not have been considered athletic, but I was, you know, I, I enjoyed those type of activities and I'm a smart guy, but I'm not that smart. So to get into the Naval Academy, I had to pad my resume. So if any team club organization at school would let me join, I join. And so like I joined the swimming team, not being a competitive swimmer, they needed divers. So I was like, well, I'll dive. I don't know how to dive, but I'll figure it out. I joined the the track team. I like I couldn't run very fast, but they're like, "Oh, you dive for the diving team. Here's a pole vault. Figure out how to how to pole vault." And so I would I did all sorts of activities and and sports. I just wasn't very good at any of them, which actually helped at Buds because ultimately what makes seals so impressive is is not the individual expertise. It's uh, one of my one of my really good seal buddies said that we're experts at becoming experts. So we're experts at getting really good at something. You know, you take any seal, you put them anywhere, they're going to be in the top two or three. And they, they're not going to be the best because the person's the best has dedicated their entire life to that domain. But there is nothing that I'm not going to do better than most people. Right. So it was less about being a, a shining star in one thing and more about being good at a lot of things. And and being able to persevere at one of the gifts of that high school career was being, being in sports that I'm not gifted at, that I'm not very good at required me to persevere through all sorts of hardship, which was ultimately the best currency for the seals. It's so interesting. So I just finished um, Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, yep. right? And yep. a lot of the things you're talking about there, and, and they do an interesting study for West Point, I think, where the, there's like a program called coming into West Point where people get crushed the summer before they come in with mm-hmm. some physical activities. And, and they were trying to increase the percentage chance of people getting through it. And, and you said a word that made me think of this, which is persevere, perseverance, right? And it's one of these things where she's been testing for that specifically. And I think that that really parlays directly into, again, West Point, Naval Academy, BUDS, right? These are things that in order to do them well, you have to have a super high level of grit. There's, I, I, I've heard a lot of stories, especially around people who are uh, apply to be a Navy SEAL, where you see the, they're like Olympic gold medalists in swimming who are like the first dude ringing the bell. Right. Yeah. And, and you can't say they don't have grit. I mean, become a, a, a but, but they don't have the right, that the specific type of grit to your point, that's going to work in that type of environment. What do you, why do you think that is? Why do you think Olympic gold medalists? I, I, I would love to hear out of your buds class, who's like the most shocking person that quit. So uh, there's kind of a, a number of points you made that I think are important. Uh, and this translates definitely into business, or I'd say performance in any part of life. I would argue that the level of success that you experience in life, if you were to distill all of the things that produce that to what is the most fundamental, I believe that the ability to self-regulate is the, the absolute core. Mm. So your ability to self-regulate mentally, physically, and emotionally will determine your potential for success, right? So if you have very little ability to self-regulate mentally, physically, or emotionally, then you, your potential for success is relatively low. If you have significant capability to self-regulate mentally, physically, and emotionally, your potential for success is very high. The second, you know, this goes on to a point I'm sure we'll talk about later. Well, if your potential is high, what is required to meet that potential 
And I would argue that that is the ability to coordinate action with others. So your potential for success is your ability to self-regulate. Your ability to meet that potential depends on how well you self, how well you coordinate with others. Our ability to coordinate with others depends on our self-regulation. Someone that has no mental, physical, or emotional self-regulation is not someone people want to pay attention to. So that feeds back to the same premise that your self-regulation determines success. And I think perseverance is the outward sign of the ability to self-regulate. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that, but then I can answer your, your question again on why does the gold medalist quit? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it makes sense, right? Because we'll use like each one, right? Physically, if I cannot physically self-regulate, I'm going to get hurt, right? I'll push myself past my limits to the point where it's like, I'm I, to a point you could probably do that, but then there's a point in which you're actually going to, the odds of injury increase exponentially, right? So that, that, so that makes sense to me. Am, am I thinking of that properly? Yeah, I look at physical self-regulation from two sides. One, when my body gives my brain the signal that I need to stop, my ability to continue to, to do that physical activity regardless of, of the messages from my body, right? So it hurts, but I keep continue to do it and hurt. That's one side of it. The other side of it is in being able to, to continue to take action despite physical hardships, So like if it's cold to continue to stay in the cold, if it's uh, painful to continue to stay in the pain. So the ability to regulate your response to your environment as as well as your ability to regulate your body in continuing to act in an environment. So that's how I look at at physical self-regulation, both sides. Interesting. So I shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius Mishazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life, canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy, watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now, and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear, uses directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and Supply and Demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. (laughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, 
all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. So I, the only way I can relate to that is I was, I was a division one wrestler and I, and I went to a wrestling camp when I was 16 in Minnesota, uh, ran by a former, um, uh, gosh, Ranger army ring. And he built yep. uh, Jay, Jay Robinson's his name. He's the head coach of the university of Minnesota NCAA championship team. And, and that their main thing there was your body, your brain will quit before your body does. Yeah. Right. And they, and, 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 and I, and I got to experience that for one month. Cause they, I mean, it was, they tortured us for a month essentially. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and about a third of the camp quit. They're a bunch of kids and one third, I mean, the thir- a third of them quit straight up. And so yeah. I had, I, I had experience. I mean, I, you know, wrestling's a hard sport, right? Wrestling's a sport that you like, you literally get your ass kicked until you're good. Like not, not yeah. figuratively, literally you just get. Yep. Um, and so I, I, I figured out like where my, where my boundaries were They I didn't have the deepest boundaries. Some people like they could handle more. I don't want, I don't want to handle as much pain as they're willing to. You know, but I had, I mean, I could handle a lot, you know, a fair amount, but I did notice I'm like, my body will quit way before or my brain will quit way before my body does. Why? So, so walk me through that. What do you think does that? Cause seals, obviously there's a ton of stuff they put you through that most people, nine out of 10 people are quitting on what, what's the one guy, the, the one out of 10 that can handle it. What's the difference maker there? So th- there's, there's two kind of key. I went way down this rabbit hole once I saw the importance of it. And once I saw the importance of self-regulation on performance, both individually and within a group, I spent a lot of time doing some pretty deep study uh, in the neuroscience of perseverance, self-regulation and the like. So the biggest things that I learned, I, I'd say that the game changer of what I learned was that uh, all three forms of self-regulation, mental, physical, and emotional, are controlled by the same two parts of the brain. That's pretty interesting, right? That mm. the same parts of the brain control emotional self-regulation and physical self-regulation uh, and mental self-regulation. That's, it's a, there's pros and cons to that. Uh, one of the pros of it is that if I build power in one, I can leverage that power somewhere else. So say I build a lot of physical self-regulation. If I need to use it for emotional self-regulation, I can because I've built that muscle already. The downside to it is there's a limited amount of power that you have in in that part of your brain, right? Just like if the cerebellum controls hand-eye coordination. If I'm, say, serving tennis balls... Uh, I will continue, my serve will get better until eventually my brain gets worn out. The cerebellum runs out of energy and my serve will get worse, right? At the thousandth serve. So it's the same thing with self-regulation of I can use up my capability and eventually I get the inability to continue to persevere. So if I use all of my self-regulation, say mentally, and I try to then apply emotional self-regulation, I don't have any stores left. Hmm. So I look at it like a piggy bank. My job is to be concerned with not only the size of my piggy bank, but how much money's in it. So I want to make sure to constantly be stretching my piggy bank, right? Making it bigger by, by pushing it when I have cash, right? When I have money in the bank, I need to push and stretch that self-regulation like you did in Minnesota. At the end of that month, your piggy bank was this big. Now it's, it's bigger. Right. You actually have a bigger bank because you saw that, oh, I thought I could only do this, but I can actually do a lot more. So your bank's bigger. You've actually built more neural connections in those two key parts of the brain. The next thing I have to worry about is how much money do I have in the bank? Right. If I have a huge bank, right, I have a humongous piggy bank from those years and years and years of torturing myself and then being tortured and then having to self-regulate in some of the worst environments of the world. Huge bank. But if I wear myself down mentally, physically, and emotionally, I spend money just like everyone else. And if my bank's empty, I'm not going to be able to persevere. So don't waste your money. That's why I don't pay attention to any social media. I don't pay attention to the news because social media and the news are designed to test you mentally and emotionally, right? Drain your bank. I don't want to waste the dollar bills on, say, social media or the news when I need them for, say, a business decision or leadership. So that's, that's how I would describe the functionality of self-regulation. Oh, I love that, man. That's so interesting. Um, so 
I want to hop back quick, uh, just, just for just a little sugar rush. So, so going back to your, the, the, what my question was, who was the, when when thinking back to buds, who was like the most surprising quitter in your class? You don't have to name their name unless unless you want to. I'd love to. Yeah. So what this, so there are two, I actually talk about two, uh, Seaman, Wright. I remember his name, the, the, uh, the guy that quit, I can't remember his name. He was a Lieutenant. I talk about them because I have a little bit, I'm a bit on the autistic scale on the Asperger side, which means uh, one, I have, I have difficulty connecting with people as a normal human. The other thing is I get fixated on patterns and when I can't find a pattern to drive me nuts. And when I was in Buds, we had Seaman Wright, who is this guy from Oklahoma, uh, grew up on a farm. He showed up 30 pounds overweight. Like there was no chance he was going to make it through. And then we had this lieutenant, he was a lieutenant JG, uh, who was on the national team for Olympic length triathletes. Like he was ranked 10 in the world. He was a, a previous pilot. So he had, was more mature, super intelligent. He even looked like GI Joe, like Duke. I mean, the guy was, you would look at him like, I'll bet my bottom dollar he's going to make it. He quit the second night of hell week and Seaman Wright made it to the very end. Well, and, well, hold on. And so how deep is Hell Week? Do you guys start in you said, September? The fifth week, right? Okay. It's now the second week of training for us. It was the fifth week of six months. And okay. he quit. Uh, it was the third night of, of the fifth week of training. And Seaman Wright made it to the end. And every day, Seaman Wright struggled. Like, if there was a run, he would make it by one second, right? Like, he struggled the entire time. And this guy, this other guy, this lieutenant quit uh, third night of Hell Week. And that screwed me up. Like, how does this guy not make it? And how does this guy make it? And what it comes down to is the ability to self-regulate. And the core of it, which I think is very, it's very, it's a very important concept that I don't hear anyone ever talk about when it comes to entrepreneurship as well is that the common thread of every SEAL that I saw that made it through training had some early childhood trauma Mm. that required self-regulation and produced drive. And that was the key thing, right? The guy that's the superstar has had an easy life, right? No traumas that drove it. Seaman Wright grew up on a dairy farm, and when he was like six, a disease went through the herd and they lost half the herd for the next five years of his life. It was absolute misery and, and concern, right? Not knowing where, if they were going to have food, that trauma not only built the drive for him to be successful or to try something so hard, but it required a mental, emotional, self, physical self-regulation when he was a little kid. I always say that you show up a seal and you just have to prove the point. Mm. right? You don't buds seal training. Doesn't make you a seal. You're either a seal. You aren't. And what makes you a seal is the ability to self-regulate. And what drives that is early childhood trauma. Where this gets a parallel that's interesting is every successful entrepreneur I know has the same issue. If you talk to them, you'll find the thing early in their life that drive drove, drove them to to even want to try to be an entrepreneur and to have the perseverance to do it. And that that early childhood trauma is what enables success and is the biggest limiter of growth. Uh, and that's one of the things that, you know, you had mentioned on pre-call, like that Javon, that's what I was working on with Javon. I mean, his, his story was ripe with trauma is how he has been so successful. And it's what I've been working with him to try and relieve so that he can experience that success on a greater level. So the parallels between the seals and entrepreneurship, I've seen to be very much the same thing. You know, so in, in, uh, I, uh, number one, I appreciate that. It's funny to hear it. We had a, a guest on the show, uh, Justin Breen, who made the same, he has the same understanding. He said, I, he's like, I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of super successful entrepreneurs and what separates, you know, seven, eight, nine figure entrepreneurs who are super successful from everyone else is, and he has like a list. It's like childhood trauma, blah, 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 blah. But, yeah. but, but trauma is like the one. And yep. um, I, there's a, there's a, um, I guess a, for lack of better words, a demon in Hinduism, Buddhism, and Taoism called the hungry ghost. Have you heard of this before? No. So it's the hungry ghost. And, and the hungry ghost it has like a small mouth and a big stomach. And it's never satisfied. 
Mm. And, and, and a lot of it, and, and there's this belief that the hungry ghost is born out of, it's a demon that is born out of trauma. Right. right. So a lot of entrepreneurs, I've been talking about this a lot lately with friends like, like Javon who are trying to cure their hungry ghosts or settle <laughs> their hungry ghosts down because you get into this more and, and, and what it comes down to, I, I think, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this is self-worth, right? Because a lot of the trauma makes you question your self-worth, whether it's an abusive parent or an abusive situation or just doing without and swearing to yourself at some, when your neural pathways are barely even born that you'll never let that happen to you again, or I'm going to prove to those motherfuckers that I'm, I'm worth yeah. something. Right. And, and I found at least myself when I've had to do the, that physical stretching you're talking about, there's moments, man, where I dude, I'm not even, I'm, my brain's empty. And mm -hmm. you're like screaming, right? Like, like primally screaming and, and you could just go, right? Cause like, you're not, and, and, and most of those times for me, I'm digging deep in some old shit, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm like, fuck everyone that said, I can't do this, you know? And I'm getting, and I'm, and then I'm just on autopilot at that point. What do you, what are your thoughts about like that? I mean, I know that's a, that's a kind of a, an, a brutal example, but what do you think about that? I, I think you're dead on, uh, the having a hungry ghost inside of you, oftentimes entrepreneurs look or and I would put entrepreneurs, generally surgeons, but anyone high up in the medical profession, special operators and pre professional athletes are all exactly the same person with different purposes. Right. I've worked with enough of each to see that it's the same makeup. They're just putting their attention towards sports instead of business or war instead of business. So all of those are the same. And all of those people have a hungry ghost, right? A hungry ghost born from trauma. The challenge is that we often look at that hungry ghost as that which produces drive in us, which is what enables us to be successful. So we nurture it, right? We, we nurture it and protect that hungry, hungry ghost. The problem with the hungry ghost is that if I'm proving from someone else or if I need to compare or if I need to to say, well, they said I can't do it. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to prove my prove that I can. Uh, then all of a sudden your purpose is coming from outside of you. So by having that hungry ghost that you're feeding, that isn't coming from you. It's coming from outside of you. And even if you accomplish it, you will never feel fulfillment. Fulfillment can only be experienced if. It comes from an internally derived, deeply held purpose. So one of the, the saddest things I've seen are super successful people that have produced amazing things in the world, have produced everything they want in their life, yet completely feel no fulfillment. I mean, I've worked with a number of billionaires. And imagine being a billionaire where you can buy anything you want. You can coordinate anyone you want to coordinate with. You can. You can have any experience you want. And to, to have tried all of that and to still feel unfulfilled. I mean, to me, that is that is a prison. Like I can at least blame my lack of fulfillment on, well, I don't have this, that or the other thing. But if you could have everything and still feel lack of fulfillment, that's that's hell. And that's where you're allowing the hungry ghost to drive you as opposed to having that trauma resolved, which enables you to still be successful, but actually experience the success. Yeah. It's interesting. I call that the biggest lie in the world. I'll be happy when X happens. Right. And to your point, like it's a lie, it's untrue. X will turn into Y will turn into Z will turn into alpha beta. So, on, right. <laughs> so, so it's just the bar just moves. Right. And so it's interesting just to see that, that, that I think what got us here won't get us there. Right. Like that there's this level of performance that, the hungry ghost probably fed a lot of seals through buds, right? Got them through it to have this great accomplishment, but that doesn't necessarily equate to happiness, right? To your point. What, um, so I want to, I want to, um, pivot a little bit. Um, and by the way, man, I'm loving this conversation. Like, like, <laughs> yeah, like, I'm like, 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 I'm like, God damn it. We should have done two hours. I could I could oh, yeah. go for days with this guy. Yeah, back to uh, back. Oh, we're not even getting started, buddy. I we know. That's, that's what I'm thinking. This is low hanging, easy stuff. We haven't even gotten to the good stuff. I know. I are just getting started and we're like halfway through. <laughs> um, so, so you did 10 years in, in, you made it through buds. Uh, what, what was your job once you got out of buds? What did you specialize in? 
because I was an officer, it was in leadership. So my job was to lead and manage combat units on the ground. And so uh, did you go all over the place? I know you're not allowed to talk about a lot of this stuff, but did you guys, did you do a lot of, I mean, you said you led the largest special ops team in the U.S. Um, was it the, uh, sorry, was it the largest special ops team or was it the largest special operation or both? Yeah, so I had specifically, uh, I chose to go to SEAL Team 3 and SEAL Team 3 is responsible for the Middle East uh, in the late 80s, early 2000s. Uh, and my team, SEAL Team 3, was responsible for the largest special operations mission in U.S. history. And I was responsible for leading one of the most dangerous parts of that overall mission. So it was uh, the opening nights of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, our team was secured with securing Iraq's oil infrastructure. Uh, and that was before any hostilities. So before anything else could happen, we had to secure Iraq's oil infrastructure. And my team, my, the team that I was leading, was was responsible for securing the world's largest oil platform. Uh, and just to kind of put it in layman's terms, my job was to go have a gunfight on the world's largest gas station that's probably rigged with explosives. <laughs> how many? Um, so how? Calling it the largest mission, was it because of the size of the, the job or was it the number of people or a combination thereof? Uh, it both. So it was the size of the job and the number of people involved. So it was uh, five different targets spread out over many, many miles. There was uh, over the largest number of SEALs ever used in any mission. We had well over about 150 SEALs on one mission uh, on all five mission, on target sets with supporting personnel that were in the tens of thousands of people, if you count all the people on all the ships, the planes uh, that were involved in that mission. So it was just massive, massive mission. And so um, with that, so when you say secure, it means basically go onto these rigs, take them over, essentially? Yeah, and just to give you an idea of the rig, like most oil platforms you look at, there may be, maybe a hundred meters square, right? You see, you sit, see them out sitting out in the ocean. Uh, this one was over 1,200 meters long. So Whoa. 12 football fields end to end, three football fields wide. Uh, it could be, it could fuel 4,000 foot tankers at the same time. I mean, it's how, it's a small how, how, city on the water. Yeah, I was going to say, how does that compare to like a, like an aircraft carrier? Is that like, is that, is that, are we talking similar scale? No, uh, this could this could dock four aircraft carriers at one time. <laughs> yeah, I, I, had so, feel, yeah. I had a feeling you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah, so an aircraft carrier is about a thousand feet long, thereabouts. Yeah, maybe more wow. you know, about that. So this would be like three times bigger than four times bigger than an aircraft carrier. I mean, uh, it's like trying to compare a, a, a semi truck with the gas station that it goes up to. So like, yeah. you know, you have those gas stations getting fuel like five semi-trucks at the same time. That's the, ex ex imagine that scaled up to thousand foot ships. Wow. And so, and so how many personnel was, on, uh, and you, so you, you managed all five of these, these. My, uh, mine was the oil platform. And then mm -hmm. we had four other targets that other commanders are running on that. And, and so when you, you went on the oil platform that you were in charge of, how many yeah. uh, pers uh, Iraqi personnel were, were on it that when you guys... So we were expecting uh, there were 95 workers. Well, the estimate was 95 workers on board plus up to four ships. And each ship would have 20 to 25 people. So you're looking at you know 200, around 200 people total. Uh, what actually started the, world, the war uh, about 20 days early was that uh, they Saddam pulled off all the tankers, pulled off all the workers, and started loading. Uh, we saw boxes being loaded on with what were three soldiers. So we went in with an expectation of, of three to five soldiers and ended up uh, confronting 23 uh, Iraqi Republican Guard, their special forces soldiers on board. So they had, they had 23 special forces on there, um, and, and was there a gunfight or no gunfight? Uh, it was limited. We we attacked with such violence of action so quickly that we had uh, every enemy soldier uh, taken care of in uh, less than seven minutes. 
So uh, they, we kind of broke the back of their resistance before they were actually able to put up a good fight. So, so I, I, I don't know if you want to talk about this. Like, how many kills is that? Like, like if there's 23, does that mean all 23 are get taken out? Or is that? And like- I would say that's one of the things that I'm most proud of. So we, based on the rules of engagement, uh, we would have been, we could shoot without being shot at, right? So at that point, uh, having those enemy combatants, we could shoot every single one of them, which would have kept us a lot safer. Uh, we, we re- had enough respect for our enemy that. We gave them through one, we create a situation where they can't resist. And then uh, from there, uh, we kept every soldier alive. So we didn't kill one of their their enemy soldiers, which Uh, is puts us at significant risk. But yeah, that's the way we approach it. I love that, man. So so you did. uh, How long were you in Navy so far? Was it a decade? Yep, That's 10 right. years from 1998 to 2008. I ended up getting injured a number of times and had a career-ending injury in 2000, late 2006 uh, and was medically retired in 2008. Um, so did you ever take? Did you ever get shot or anything like that? I did not. I have not been shot. Okay. I've been luckily on the giving end, not the receiving end of, the, of that equation. Yeah, man, that's, that's, that's craziness. Um, uh, I was talking, uh, do, do you know, um, oh gosh, I can't remember Clay's last name. Clay Martin, you know, Clay Martin, Spencer no. Tucker. he's a former, I guess, green beret, but he was telling me, uh, actually <laughs> love to get a two second thought on this. He was telling me that like we, we went and shot guns at Tucker's ranch with mm-hmm. him and he, he trains people on, on shooting guns. And so a former green beret wrote a book called concrete jungle, real, real interesting guy. Um, but he, uh, he said, you know, when you first go out and you're getting in gunfights, like you're carrying like a ton of ammo. But why, once you get experience, it's like you don't want to carry too much because it takes up room for your snacks. So, so, <laughs> so he's like, you could tell who the experienced, you know, the guys with a lot of experience because they have the least amount of ammo and the most amount of snacks. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I've I've always <laughs> taken the approach that no one ever left a gunfight and said, oh, I wish I brought less rounds and a smaller gun. So. Fair enough. <laughs> So, um, so look, you, you've taken this career in, in the SEALs and segued it into uh, the, this new business, um, or not new business, but your business now where you're the CEO and creator of the SEAL team leaders. Um, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, like what was the, obviously you learned a lot about leadership being in the SEALs. I know we didn't get to dive into that too much, but, but yeah, tell us like what was the, what was the motivation around, around SEAL team leaders? So SEAL Team Leaders is, is actually my fourth company. So I, I went right into entrepreneurship, uh, literally in the hospital bed when the surgeon came in and told me my SEAL career was over. Uh, I was faced with really a crisis of purpose uh, based on the fact that, as you know, from the story I told, third grade, like I was going to serve the country. Once I decided I wanted to be a SEAL, I didn't think I was going to live past 30. Uh, so I was like, you know, blaze of glory, I'm going to be done, uh, you know, fulfill my duty to the country and my men. And now I'm faced with the inability to do that based on the injuries. And it was in that kind of crisis of purpose that identifying that up to this point, I'd only ever see myself as a weapon of destruction. Like my, my tools were to break things and hurt people. And so I never thought that I could create anything. And it was taking all of that kind of ugliness and violence, which was really about disconnection, uh, both as the operator, I had to be emotionally and physically disconnected from my mind. I couldn't worry about getting hurt and I couldn't allow emotions to come into my daily thoughts or else it would, it would cloud my judgment uh, all the way through really using violence as an expression of love, which is, you know, backwards, right? I cared. I love so much our country, our way of life, the seal standing next to me that I was willing to risk my own life and, and use violence to secure that, uh, that was so backwards that being able to then leverage that experience to bring more connection into the world through really my careers, uh, through all my companies has been through education, uh, being able to bring those unique experiences and knowledge into the worlds of others to better their lives and bring more connection to the world. And I think this latest company for the last 10 years has been focused around around 
coordination of action through leadership and planning, coaching, mentoring. And to me, that's kind of the greatest expression of, of that ugly past is that by bringing that knowledge, those knowledge, skills and resources to individuals, we create the opportunity for them to bring more connection in our life and produce bigger results. So when you start talking about, I mean, and really we're, we're diving into the work around leadership. Yep. Um, I'm guessing the book really touches on this. So when, you, when did the, the book come out? How long ago did the book, how, how leadership actually was in May. So May, uh, we're about what, like eight, seven, eight months out. So, so, so the, is the book really kind of the nexus of all this thought leadership put into writing for, for anyone to enjoy? Exactly. We, we generally just work with well-established companies and individuals. So uh, it's gotten to a point now where I'm to get to me is very limited, right? I, I, you're either paying a whole lot of money or your company's paying a whole lot of money. We're talking most of the programs we're charging are hundred grand plus uh, and 4,000 a day. So when it comes to that, we just, the, the impact that we could have to others was limited and it was Tucker and, and Javon that said that it just wasn't fair that we weren't able to share these, what are very fundamental principles of performance to, to greater audience. And that's when they convinced me to write the book. So it really is a, a consolidation of all of the principles and really what it was. People make the assumption that what I write is what I was taught in the seals. And that wasn't the case. Like we really don't get taught much in how to lead you either lead or you don't get to be there right performance isn't an option there lack of performance is not accepted and so i went straight from the naval academy which is a very high performing group of people into the seals which is the highest group of performers in the world and i just took for granted that this is how things work and i started my first company and and hired a team of 20 some people and it was a shit show. Like, <laughs> I mean, not only was it miserable to be part of the team, but they were miserable performers. And that was where I was like, holy crap, normal people don't act like we act. Like no. the things we just take for granted, people are, are like new concepts. And so if I was to describe what's in the book more than anything else, it's, it's spending over a decade in the business world, working with high performing companies and a decade in the seals and saying what's missing like in the highest performing you know billion dollar company they still didn't know what i thought were just fundamental principles of performance that i took for granted with on the seals and and that's what i put together a really complete system of this is what it takes to operate at a high level in any domain i focus on business because that's where i've spent the last 15 years but arguably this is just as applicable on your son's football team than it is as it is in the business world. And, and so that sure. I'd say is like, what is the missing pieces of understanding between high performing teams like the seals and the teams that, that we find in the civilian world. So it's interesting. Like when I, I, I do a lot of, you know, advisory work and consulting and, and leadership coaching and stuff like that as well uh, nowadays. Um, and, I've used the example of like the seals in the military. I said, look, like you got a lot at stake, right? Like if I screw up, my buddy dies, right? Or the mission fails and, and how many millions and millions of dollars get blown up when that happens. Right. So I think because there's so much at stake that it's almost like Olympic style performance is required. Right. Where it's like, there is no fucking up. You know I, what I mean? Yes and no. In the, if you were to ask the average SEAL, how much did they think about the consequence of failure? They would say none. Really? Right. So in that environment, so if you think about it from that perspective, in this environment, right, where you have all these people working at this extremely high level and you're like, well, they're working on that level because of the consequence of not. You ask them, they're like, no, I never even paid attention to the fact that if I didn't do my job, I died or someone else died. That couldn't be the secret sauce, right? It, mm. I approach, I approach everything that way, right? Like, you know, making dinner, I look at as a life and death task as much as I did, you know, a life and death task in the seal, like it doesn't register that way. So I think that's an excuse 
that people can use, right? They can be like, oh, you guys operate that way because you had to or you die. Yet if you asked any one of the operators, they'd be like, no, I never thought once about dying based on not fulfilling my commitments. So I, I don't think that's necessarily the driver. Well, it, I'm glad you said that. So, so you're actually like people should read your book and my book. My book because my book is called the core value equation, and it makes the argument that if I hire for people that share my values, I don't have to tell them to do it any specific way because that's just how they do it, right? So what I'm hearing you say is that values is a really big part of leadership and getting people on the right bus who share the same values. Walk me through your thoughts on that. I would say so. I think values are critical to me. A value is a deeply held belief. A deeply Mm -hmm. held belief leads to a truth. Right. If I see that something is true, I can't act or make a choice in discord to my truth. So yes. all of my actions are dependent on my truths and my truths get informed by my values. So if I was to put a formula together as to why you're right, I would. That's how I do it. Right. So I'd say that's how it works. Uh, when I go into. So, yes, values are critical because they lead to truth, truth lead to behaviors or actions. Uh, I would look at it from there are three core, I would say, like understandings. And, and these aren't necessarily values as much as understandings that enabled us to coordinate action at a high level. Uh, some of the core pieces are responsibility. Like what makes the SEAL teams better than every other team I've ever been in contact with? When a SEAL says he's going to do something, he does it. Like that's, that's about it. Right. And in a civilian team, if someone does 80% of what they say they're going to do half the time, they're a high performer. Right. Like not, it is not in my uh, company. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, when, you, when you said 80%, I was going to say that not even that, <laughs> like, yep. like, no, no, this is so, so standards matter then. Yeah, it's rare, right? Just the ability, the skill of accepting responsibilities, holding that responsibility and passing responsibilities in a way that others can hold them, right? That becomes a fundamental principle because the whole purpose of a team is to share responsibilities, right? We would not need a team if I could hold all the responsibilities by myself. And yet every problem that I find in teams is people not doing what they say they're going to do, right? Rarely is it... Sometimes you have a strategy issue. Sometimes you have a process issue. But most of the time, it just falls down to a team issue of people not doing what they say they're going to do. The, the next one is, is on planning. Like most companies don't do planning to the extent that is necessary. How do you know that you have planned to an extent that is necessary? You meet your commitments, right? Like you meet your goals and objectives. If you don't, you didn't plan well enough. As a SEAL, we, we not only never failed to plan, we always plan to fail. So every plan that we have, the core plan is one piece of it. We then create 19 plans for every time, every single way we think of that core plan going wrong. Mm. And I look at most civilian organizations, if they plan once or twice a year, they're good, right? Mm. It's, it just doesn't work that way. And the last one is in feedback. Like as a SEAL, ego killed. And there's a difference between ego and confidence. Confidence is knowing I can meet a standard of performance based on past history. Ego is thinking I can meet a standard of performance based on no history of performance. And in the SEALs, we didn't allow ego to exist. We had confidence, but it was well-earned. And that ability to live with no ego allows me to constantly be in a state of feedback where I'm improving my capabilities, my skills, and increasing my experience to have better confidence. And those are kind of the three core pieces that I've seen absent in most organizations. Yeah, you're preaching the choir, man. I mean, so literally when when I work with organizations or my own organizations, the three pieces that I work on is mission, where are we going, building cadence around planning quarterly and weekly, accountability, building an accountability system to make sure those things that you say you're going to do, you do. And then performance management so you can get the data to then optimize the first two. Yeah. <laughs> like that. Yeah, and we're, so we're so we're aligned, there. man. I mean, the fu- it's because 
I know that what I'm saying is not mine. Like I didn't invent this stuff. Yeah. I, it's a distillation of fundamental principles. These are fundamental principles. And that's why I love meeting people like you that have come to the same place means like to me, that's, that's a little check mark. I'm right. Right. Here's another oh. smart guy that has gone from a completely different background of experience, to the same piece. That means that these are fundamental true. That's gold. Those are the nuggets. Well, let me ask you a question because so I, so yeah, I think that like anyone that's done anything at a high level of success with the right people has probably come to some conclusion of the fundamental truths that you you just said. And I, I disagreed with one of the things though, that I realized in, let's say in a civilian organization, as opposed to, um, a high performing organization like seals or, you know, there's probably other ones out there is that it's, it is hard to get people the it is hard to get people to do those things. And so like, like we just made it sound easy, but like take a 10,000 person or a 1000 person or a 500 person organization and break people up into groups of 10 thousand person organization, hundred groups of 10, right? Like it's really hard to get what I found is it's hard to get people to do it consistently. And maybe my top performers will do it organically without me prodding them. But I, but in order for me to scale and grow and really be successful, like my top, I need 80 to 90% of the people doing it. And the 10% that don't can be, can, can say bye-bye. Um, so what I found was really, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and is I found you have to make it easy to do the things that we just said, or else the organization won't do it. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I rely on two things. I agree with you, right? If, if it's hard and takes a lot of perseverance, you're going to run out of self-regulation at some point. People can't do it. They literally can't, right? As we found. Uh, you can only do so many push-ups, right? Like no matter how much perseverance you have, we all have a limit. And I would argue that in a difficult environment where there's a lot of struggle, where people are going to meet that that limit quite soon. So the two tools that that I leverage to make it easy, uh, the first one, and I think the most important one is language. So if our success is dependent on our ability to coordinate action with others, our least cost tool for coordination of action is language. Language through a shared background of experience enables us to coordinate action at a low cost. Therefore, the better I am with language and the, the tighter my language is in my organization, the easier it is to coordinate action and the easier it is to produce success. So language is to me one of the most critical pieces of that puzzle, right? So if I want to make something easy, what am I going to spend a lot of time on? I'm going to spend a lot of time on language, not only creating a shared background of language so we can coordinate easily, but being able to listen very specifically to where an individual's actions and meaning are not the same uh, in that you get, you get an insight into their subconscious. So that'd be the first piece. Uh, the second piece is, is process. Right. Like like I broke down the concept of values being important into that formula. I look sure. at everything as a formula. There is nothing in human behavior that that I don't look at as as an engineer. So like there's no holes for me in in ambition or leadership or communication. Like I have a formula for every single one of those. And I have a very distinct definition or understanding of each one of those words that I ensure that everyone I work with shares that same distinction. Those would be the two pieces that I would leverage to, to create ease in coordination of action. What do you find with, um, and this is probably last time for, we have time for this last question. I know you got to bounce, but, um, when you look at organizations, I'm assuming high performing organizations, people like Javon, who you work with at Scribe and that's a super high performing yep. organization. I know you work with a lot of bigger companies as well. Um, what do you find is like from the moments they got to want to be better to work with you. So let's assume they come and start working with your company. They got to want that want to be better. What do you find is the difference between those that want to be better and those that actually become better? What's the biggest differential that you, that you notice with them? And what is that outcome for the, for those that really, really, buy into your guys' style of leadership development and organizational development? It, to me, it's, it's ambition. So ambition to me is the desire to change the current situation into a different future situation. Uh, ambition fundamentally is a desire for change. 
those with large ambition have a huge desire for change. Those with low ambition want no change. So ambition to me is a formula like nothing, like everything else. Ambition, in order to have ambition, a desire for change, you have to have clarity on the dissatisfaction with the present situation or the trajectory of the present situation. You have to have clarity on the future you want to create, the future environment you want to exist in, and you have to have a perception of power that you can create the change from the unsatisfactory present to the satisfactory future. If when we have a client, it's my job to create or produce ambition for change in them by creating that, by fulfilling that formula. They, I have to bring into their reality the unsatisfactory present or the, the unsatisfactory trajectory. I have to have them really connect to and identify the future state that they want to produce. And I have to show them because a lot of times you have people that think today sucks, are clear on what they want tomorrow, and they're still not in action. They're not in action because they don't have a perception they have the power to change. Mm. So it's it's empowering them to see what they need to learn, practice, gain experience in to have that power to create the dissatisfactory present to the satisfactory future. That formula is is a universal formula for ambition. And is if you need to move a person from, from one place to another, you have to leverage that formula to create that ambition. Man, I'm like in love with your formulas, by the way. I'm just <laughs> like, look, I'm going to call it like it is. Larry, I can't believe we're out of time. I'm bummed. Like, <laughs> like we got we to gotta do this again. This is awesome. I'm, I would I'm love, yeah, we didn't love even to have you. We didn't even touch on leadership at all. I mean, just I, barely on the outside. So, I, yeah, I, I, I agree. Another hour. Let's do it. All right. I'll have my team line it up. Um, man, well, look, listeners, um, first of all, man, so much gratitude over here for just getting to hang out and bullshit and like learn from yeah. you. Like you really have a unique way of thinking about things. I'm so pumped that Scribe uh, recommend you for the show. Like listeners just got a, a freaking brain full of knowledge from you, man. You're a stud. Thank you so much. Thank, uh, it's my pleasure. And like I said, being able to turn the the my old world of, of violence into love and connection through through teaching and writing has been has given me a purpose to exist uh, past my old career. So if it wasn't for people that had the courage to want to get better, uh, I, I don't know if I'd still be here on this planet. So th- so thank you for being there. Yeah, man. Pleasure is more than mine. So uh, any listeners, listen, go get the book, How Leadership Actually Works. I'm pumped. I'm so excited to read this. I'm going to devour your book. Um, and we got to send you my book because you're going to love my book, man. Oh, it's, yeah. like, it's, it's, it's a it's a total like blueprint on how do you operationalize values in a business. Um, oh, I love it. And, yeah, you're going to really dig it. Um, and so uh, and then anyone that wants to learn more about what you or your, your business and wants to work with you guys, go to sealteamleaders.com. Is there any, anything else you want to promote to our audience? Yeah. So uh, SEAL Team Leaders would be kind of what our, our, core, our core consulting company. HowLeadershipActuallyWorks.com is where you get the book and there's links there. The other thing is kind of fun is uh, I love to do all sorts of crazy things. And so my girlfriend put together an Instagram page recently that is Larry does cool shit is the <laughs> Instagram handle. And it's all of my adventures. Like uh, yesterday I flew from Park City to Salt Lake City, which is about 100 miles over 12,000 foot peaks in my powered paraglider. So oh, it's yeah. like it's all of these type of adventures that I love to go on. So that's that's a cool page to kind of see the the more interesting side of Larry. Larry, man, you're a stud. You're a badass. Until next time, man, we're going to do it again. I appreciate you. Thank you, man. All right. Everybody, we are out of here. If you love this show, share it with friends, and you should because, dude, this guy was just dropping the knowledge um, and so much to learn from Larry, and I can't wait till we do it again next time. All right, everybody, we love you. Peace out. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen. If you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. 
leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode, you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.